friends, this is Joanna Brooks, fellow traveler in Mormon feminism and author of the Book of Mormon Girl, with a special request for you. You know, since the beginning of the Mormon feminist movement, we have published our own books, we have supported our own art projects, our own intellectuals, and I'm asking you one more time to pony up in support of one of our Mormon feminist sisters who I think is the most exciting and soon to be most accomplished public historian in Mormonism today. That's our girl, Lindsay Hanson Park, who tears it up on this podcast each week, bringing us incredible insights about the Mormon past, including polygamy and its persistent influence on the way we live our lives today. Lindsay does her thing, bringing us brilliance for pennies. What does she make? Cents on the dollar that every male Mormon podcaster makes, if that. It's up to us. It's up to us. If Mormon feminist history matters to you, if having incisive, intelligent critique of racial inequality, gender inequality in the Mormon church matters to you, will you support this podcast? As Mormon feminists have always done for each other, we've always published our own books, we've always supported our own arts. Let's pitch in to support one of our own, doing crucial intellectual work that's going to stand the test of time. That's right. Go to feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. Look for the donate button and use PayPal or whatever other means are at your disposal to become a monthly subscriber. Join me in becoming a subscriber to this podcast. Just $10 a month, $20 a month, and you can hold your head high and know that you're contributing to a long history of Mormon sisters doing it for themselves. Thank you. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy, where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And I'm actually laughing right now at myself for my utter sheer stupidity. I spent earlier in the day about two hours recording this episode, and I decided to scrap it off and start all over. So if I sound jaded or tired, it's only because I'm having some serious, boring deja vu of doing this before. And the reason why I am doing this over is because I'm going to be covering a lot of topics today, a lot of topics, a lot of groups. It's going to be a lot of information. And originally, I started out doing a really comprehensive timeline of each group. And it just dragged on and the information just blurred together. And I'm struggling with what to do with that because I really like to give each group a fair shake, give every story its due, at least as best and as responsible as I can. But I'm finding that that not only is draining on me, but also draining on the audience. I've had some feedback that this fundamentalist section of the podcast has been really difficult for people to process, especially active Latter-day Saints who are finding themselves sort of shocked at how similar fundamentalist groups are with the LDS groups or how different uh, the narratives are than what they were taught. And uh, I've wrestled with this. I 
I've wrestled with how much to cover and how much detail to go into. It's been kind of a challenge. And so what I've decided tonight is that I'm going to take a bunch of these groups and just sort of give little vignettes about them. And I apologize in advance to the listeners if any of them are associated with these groups. I would strongly encourage the listeners to go do your research on these groups. There are lots of incredible stories to unearth and uncover if you're willing to do that. And I'm hoping that by consolidating all these groups into one episode, you are not going to conflate them with your mind and consider all of them the same. Hopefully, if you'll take anything out of this podcast, is how different these groups can be while still drawing on some of the same similarities. So with that, let's play a game, shall we? Everybody, wherever you're at, sitting in your kitchen or in your car or hopefully doing something more exciting than either of those things, I want you to think of something for a minute. Seriously, just go with me on this. Let's pretend you are going to start your own religion. It has to be a break-off of the Mormon faith. So, in this exercise, since you're calling the shots, you get to decide what things you want to take from the Mormon faith that you think are valuable or maybe ethically, morally, spiritually sustainable and important. Maybe some of the things you don't like about Mormon doctrine and the way that you've processed it and uh, lived it so far. What things are you going to take? What things are you going to leave? Think about that for a minute. Then if you were to weigh those things, the things you like the most versus the things you don't like the most, if you were to prioritize that, that would be an interesting exercise, right? To see of those things that sort of rise to the top of your list, which things become the most important? What drives you to start this new ideology? What are your priorities in this faith you grow? And then from there, how would you do this? Think of the practical aspects. If you you have some options. You either believe, really believe in these things, or maybe you have other motives. Maybe you want power. Maybe you want money. Maybe you want the sense of belonging to your community. Or maybe you just want to build something, you know, basing off these principles that you grew up loving. Regardless, take whatever your motivations are and figure out what would you do next. Now, let me be clear. I'm not encouraging anyone to do this. In fact, I would strongly discourage this. <laughs> In fact, I think hierarchical institutions, when they're given religious prescriptions and penalties, become a problem, as we have seen in this series. So I'm absolutely not encouraging you to do that whatsoever at all. But what I am saying is I want you to explore these ideas. Keep those questions in mind as we go throughout the rest of the podcast, because we're going to talk about different groups today. I'm leaving two big groups to have their own podcast, the FLDS and Centennial Park, because their stories deserve their own timelines, and I'm sure some of the groups I'm going to cover today do as well. But unfortunately, I don't want to spend, you know, 200 years of polygamy for this podcast. I just want to keep this in a containable way, and we are nearing the end of this series. Uh, my goal is to go around 100, and so I'm going to really try to stick to that. If we go over, that's okay, but I'm going to try to go for 100 episodes, and I believe this is episode number 82. So we're going to cover some of the groups, and uh, it's going to be not a all-encompassing list. It's going to be a list of the ones that I found were the most interesting or 
or at least to me, told me the most about ourselves as Mormons, as LDS, as the Restorationist tradition. So let's get into it. There are so many interesting stories to tell. The first one is about a group called the TLC. Now, I often mess up this group's name because the show Sister Wives, where Cody Brown and his family come from the AUB, the Apostolic United Brethren, are on a network television for the television called the TLC, the Learning Channel. So when I think polygamy and I think TLC, my mind bounces back and forth. Is it the Browns or is it the group? Is it the Browns or is it the group? When I'm saying TLC, I am specifically talking about the group, the true and living church. And that's who we're going to be talking about for a few minutes here. I want to tell you the story about the founder of the church because as to the questions I asked, he teaches us some important things about the answers to those questions. The man I'm going to talk about, his name is James D. Harmston. And sometimes if I'm being lazy, I might call him Jim Harmston because, you know, Sanjeev Bhattacharya and uh, other, other writers call him Jim Harmston. And some of his followers call him Jim as well. So, but his name is James D. Harmston. And he was raised in the LDS church. He was an active member. And of course, it pains me not to give a comprehensive timeline because there's a lot of interesting things that we will have to skip over. But for the purpose of brevity, James Harmston decided that maybe after, you know, maybe the church wasn't going in the correct way after being an active Mormon. Now, in 1994, he started having study groups. Anyone that lived late 90s, like I grew up as a teenager in the late 90s, and I remember my mom talking about people and these study groups, right? These study groups were bad. And, uh, of course, study groups were happening all the way from the 70s and 80s into the 90s. And, of course, the church, the institutional LDS church in the 90s starts to deal with what is now called the purge, where they punish a lot of scholars and professors and try to censor them. And they excommunicate people in 1993. Well, all this is going on when T the TLC has its first beginnings. James Harmson is living in Manti, and a group of the people in Manti would occasionally get together for these study groups. Now, we can see how this happens in Mormonism. If you've ever been in a gospel doctrine class or a Sunday school class where there's one guy that tries to outsmart everyone to show you how smart he is with the scriptures, this is how this happens, right? I remember being in these... Sunday school classes where these people were just trying to prove what they knew. And of course, me wanting to know more was so fascinated and thought, oh, I wish we could talk about this, and really get into this, the meatier, you know, parts of the doctrine. Well, the James Harmson was doing just that. He was meeting with uh, several people. Some of them had fundamentalist leanings and some were just active LDS members. And they would have these study groups and informal gatherings and they would discuss their interpretations of the gospel. Now, as this happened, as they were digging in deeper, trying to get to the meatier things of the gospel, they start to discover some things, as happens with a lot of people that convert to fundamentalism. They, dis they discover doctrines that we don't talk about anymore. They discover quotes and scriptures and discourses and uh, talks and texts that we've never heard of before. And this is what happens to James Harmston. He starts to believe that 
the church, the LDS church, has diluted some of the pure doctrines of Joseph Smith. He and his wife, Elaine, really start to resent this, and they try to seek this closer relationship with God. So they decide to seek those answers at home. Now, at the same time, there's a man who's an independent polygamist named Ogden Kraut. And Ogden Kraut ran a publisher house that he and uh, one of his polygamist wives, Anne Wilde, who hopefully will come on the show. I've just got to schedule a time with her. Um, she's a polygamy proponent. They were publishing all this polygamous text. Well, someone had printed a pamphlet about the true order of prayer. It's said that maybe Gary Barnes authored the manuscript, and perhaps Harmston even had a hand in it. But uh, in 1990, Ogden Kraut's publishing house, Pioneer Press, published a pamphlet, a manuscript called Further Light and Knowledge, and it was about the true order of prayer. So Harmston's really into this idea. So he and Elaine are said to have uh, gone into their living room in, in 1992 and engaged in this true order of prayer. And what they do is they don their temple, their Mormon temple robes, but they do it at home, and they create sort of a makeshift altar with a pillow and it, on top of their piano bench with a sheet over the top, and they kneel in the true order of prayer, and they try to facilitate this true communication with God. They believe that when they did this, they said that God gave them the same answer that he gave Joseph Smith. So they sort of recreate this narrative of Joseph Smith. They go into the sacred grove, in this case their living room and their piano bench, and they ask God, which of all the churches is true? And he says that even the current LDS church, this is what God says, God says even the current LDS church is wrong, and these people should start their own, sort of this Joseph Smith recreation. So they feel really good about what they're doing, and they start to bring other people into this. Now, not only do they start doing this with their group, but they also believe that they visit, that they had a visit from divine messengers, including Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Specifically speaking, James Harmson claims that on November 25th of 1990, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses appeared to him to bestow priesthood keys that they had somehow at some point seized from the current LDS priesthood leaders. So, this is something else to remember about the TLC, this group. Harmston, although he sympathizes with the 1886 revelation from John Taylor and believes that there is some truth in it, he also doesn't claim his authority from John W. Woolley or anyone from the 1886 revelation. Harmston believes that God and Jesus came and and uh, visited him and then sent Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses to directly restore the keys to him because they had taken them from the prophets. It's a really interesting way to start a church when we're talking about the how. How do you do this? This is how James Harmston does it. So they're located in Manti, Utah, and they decide to establish their own church, the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ, of, of saints of the last days, and Harmston becomes a president, prophet, seer, and revelator. They actually convince several hundred followers to follow them. And it's said that, uh, I think in 1997, they increased their numbers so much that they had a website and they had an establishment. They at one time owned the Red Brick Store in Manti, and they had other other buildings there as well. 
One of the interesting things about Harmston, and we're going to see this theme too, one of the things he decides to take from his Mormonism and establish in this new church is the idea of multiple mortal probations. Say that three times fast. Multiple mortal probations. I bet you can't do it. Uh, Brian Hales calls them MMPs, which I think sounds a lot cooler. This is sort of a reincarnation, Buddhist, Hindu, persuasion, Mormon mix, right? What Harmston takes from this is that he is indeed the reincarnated spirit of Joseph Smith. He is awakened to this. Joseph was killed, was not able to finish his work. So, of course, Harmston is born. He is Joseph Smith, and he is supposed to carry out this work. It's actually, if you don't mind me saying, it's a persuasive doctrine within the context of Mormonism. There's some, there's some theological evidence, crumbs, if you will, pieces to put together this puzzle. So, he believes that he's Joseph Smith. But, let me tell you more about that. He's not only Joseph Smith, but Joseph Smith and also Harmston in their other lives were also Isaiah and King Arthur. But here's the best one. It's according to Brian Hales, and I'm not making this up. According to Brian Hales, after viewing the movie Braveheart, Harmston has a revelation and suddenly remembers that he previously lived as William Wallace. I mean, it's kind of funny and strange to think about, but wow, what a thing to believe, right? That would be an amazing thing to know that you are all these important people in history. What an incredible experience. And this is something that, that sort of seeps into their doctrine. When they give a patriarchal blessing to the members of the church, they actually tell them, it's common to tell them who their former mortal lives are as well as who they are in their current probation. And it's strict, you know, on gender and on species. So it's not Buddhist in that a human man cannot be like a female dog, right, in life. And uh, a female dog cannot reincarnate into a human man. It's just a human man reincarnates as human man, human woman as a human woman. So that's something interesting about that. His first wife, Elaine, is also a necromancer. Now, that word, remember, sounds worse than it actually is. If you listen to our Mormons and Magic episode on the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, you'll know that Joseph Smith was a necromancer. His family was necromancer. It was basically interesting, interested in communing with the dead. So Elaine reportedly uh, has a special pink room with an altar where she communicates with dead ancestors of the TLC members to see if the dead would like to be proxy baptized for the TLC, which is, in the context of Mormonism, is rather nice, considering that they're asking for consent of these people, not just baptizing them, and hoping that they'll accept them like the LDS Church does. According to Brian Hales, in 2002, they had about 500 members, uh, with a quorum of 12 apostles, a first presidency, and there's a lot more to say, but basically one of the big scandals involved with that was... Uh, you know, Jim Harmston sort of takes on many wives. It's said that he, he married a 16-year-old girl. This drew a lot of public criticism, which he denied. And I believe, if I'm remembering right, she has left the church um, after his death. Many people have left the TLC, and they're sort of dying out more than they have. Um, 
Harmston has sort of experimented with the United Order and survivalist uh, communal living. There was a time where he predicted that Christ would appear. He actually predicted the date. March 25th of the year 2000, Jesus Christ would come and restore Usher in the Millennium. And, uh, of course, this is not unique. There was, in 2000, there was the Y2K scare, and the whole sort of world was sort of caught up in this end-of-day sort of speech. Well, Harmston predicts this exact date, and what he does is he has people open up lines of credit up to $250,000 each. So what they do is they go get credit cards, open up loans, do whatever they can, and they buy a ton of things. They maxed out their credit cards by reportedly buying china, silverware, goblets, food, a large freezer, chocolate desserts, and fresh flowers. They were going to make this elegant, fancy feast. So they all gather together in the assembly hall, and they wait through the night. And to Jim's credit, he was there with them. He wasn't, like, trying to defraud them and run with their money. He was waiting. And when it didn't happen, of course it didn't happen. I think that would have made the news. Uh, Jim told the followers, go home and find and ask, Lord, is it I? Am I the one that kept Christ from coming? And, of course, we see this tactic in a lot of um, sort of, I hate to use this word, but I think it applies cult mentalities. If there's an end of days, Revelation, we see this in the FLDS, we see this in many other groups, that is not fulfilled. The leader's um, prerogative is to put it on the people and say, okay, which one of you messed this up? Obviously, one of you messed this up. You're not righteous enough. And so he lost a lot of followers. There were people trying to sue him. In fact, his website that he had up shut down, uh, saying that the Day of the Gentile was over, meaning that uh, sort of their proselytizing to anyone outside of Mormonism was over. They also have some, you know, when we're talking about what you're going to take and what you're going to keep, they're very tied to the scouting program, to the venture scouting program, which is a little bit more equitable in that it let girls and boys participate. They have a lot of those same sort of structures that the LDS Church has. And and yet they are influenced by, you know, non-Mormon groups like Edgar Casey and the Summit Lighthouse. Yet they have this living endowment. They have rewritten the temple endowment. And they keep the word of wisdom, although they've sort of done this sort of vegan raw diet hybrid where uh, it's said that they, you know, don't take out, they take out sugar and honey and meat are forbidden. It's, I guess they took some of the ideas from Eat Right for Your Type books by Peter D. Adamo. And Harmson gave up wearing leather or animal products um, for a time, but it's unclear whether he made his members do this as well. Harmston died of a heart attack on June 17, 2013, at the San Pete Valley Hospital. He had a history of heart trouble, but his death was unexpected. And some speculated because he died in June, sort of the same way that, same time, not same way, same time that Joseph Smith died, that it was, of course, this indication. And some are waiting for, you know, Joseph to be reborn again. So that's a really reductive story of the TLC. But it starts to, to answer those interesting questions. How do you start a religion? How do you take these things? And in many ways, 
from what I understand, it seems that James Harmson is a true believer. Of course, he has criticism. You can read about it in Sanjeev Bhattacharya's book about abuse. He's said to be violent, abusive, jealous, very unfair and inequitable with his funds. A lot of things that you can expect from a leader. But then other people will say that he is just like a nice Mormon neighbor guy living next door, you know, that talks to God and is Joseph Smith reincarnated. So it's interesting to think about those those things. So that's one group I want to talk about. Now, buckle up, because we are going to talk about another interesting story. And I've wrestled with this story because it's polygamous, but the story isn't about polygamy. It's sort of about polygamy, but that's not the most interesting part about this. But I feel like it fits because it's Mormon fundamentalists and there's something in this story that is just so fascinating to me. And it's frightening to me how fascinating it is. And so we'll talk about that. I want to tell you about a man named Christopher Namelka. Now there's a whole timeline on a site. There's an entire site dedicated to all of his wrongdoings. You can follow the timeline you know, in advance to learn more about him. But the gist is basically this. Christopher Namelka goes to West High School, graduates. He uh, goes on a mission to Buenos Aires, Argentina, as an active Latter-day Saint. It's said that he got in some trouble with a local girl who was 15 years old. And it's sort of controversial how much trouble, I guess, there were rumors that he got her pregnant on his mission, which he adamantly denies. Regardless, he ends up uh, coming home from his mission, and he gets a gig as a security guard at Temple Square. Now, it's said that two two interesting things happen, allegedly, during this time. Uh, he marries and has a wife, but that's not, that's not the part I'm talking about. He becomes disillusioned with the LDS church. He, he writes and rants and raves about this often, about the corporate nature sort of showing him the true colors of the church. He sees these guys as just men. And I've actually heard similar experiences from people that work with the church. They've seen uh, these prophets and apostles on their worst day acting like corporate bureaucrats, and it's very difficult for them to square. So this happens to Christopher Namelka. He becomes convinced that these guys are not inspired men of God. Also starts to claim that some, at some point being a security guard on Temple Square, he has a special visitation. He claims that on June 16, 1987, he is personally visited by Joseph Smith comes to Christopher Namelka. So Joseph Smith comes and he says, Hey, guess what? You are my reincarnated brother. Now, it's interesting. Both of these stories, Chelsea and Namelka, have this reincarnation narrative, but they're theologically completely different, so keep those separated. Harmson is Joseph Smith. Namelka is Hiram Smith. Completely different reasons why. Joseph says, listen, Hiram, you need to finish the job that, that you started back in, you know, before we were both killed in Carthage. You need to finish this. You have to finish translating the sealed portion of the gold plates. And so Namelka pours himself into this. Now, of course, as he's doing this along the way, he has children, he gets divorced, uh, he gets remarried. He fights some custody battles. He uh, moves to Missouri. He visits old mission friends. He comes back. He gets in more custody battles. He's accused of doing all sorts of stuff. He's in and out of jail. He's on parole. He's violating parole. 
he starts becoming in the news, yada, yada, yada. There's a whole very complicated, very wild and crazy history with Malka. He's a little bit litigative. Uh, he doesn't like anything bad being said about him. He's had it out with uh, the publishers of City Weekly, and I've linked to some articles so you can read more about him. And Sanjeev Bhattacharya talks a lot about Christopher Namalka in his book. And it's interesting because Christopher Namalka does something that I find predatory, and it's that he waits, as do many fundamentalists, uh, they depend on converts from people who are disillusioned from the LDS church. So I'm particularly sensitive to this because I work with a lot of vulnerable people. A lot. I was a vulnerable person. You guys have heard me cry on this podcast. I've been there a couple of years ago. And in some cases, I think I will always be there. And I think many of the listeners can identify with this. Christopher Nimelka in particular would wait for these people to feel disillusioned about the church. And then he swoops in with his sort of savior complex and wants to save the day. And now this is important. And I tell this story for this reason alone. All of us, anyone that grew up in the Mormon faith and grew up as a true believer and believed it and listened and followed followed the prophets, all of us are susceptible to this. Every single one of us. And if you don't think so, I mean, it just takes one vulnerable moment. I hate to, like, Mormon fear shame you. It just takes once. But in some ways, Mormonism can be a slippery slope. As Sanjay Bhattacharya calls it, it's strong potion. And Christopher's interesting because mostly I listen to him and I think, this guy is crazy, this guy is violent, this guy is harmful. But every once in a while, he'll say something, and he'll co-opt the Mormon language and the Mormon story, and he'll say it in a way that I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And I think, what did I do? And we all do this. How many leaders do we build up in the Mormon progressive community? How many people do we follow as our new prophets? I've done it myself. And that is why it's so important. If you take one thing out of this podcast, it's to look inside yourself first. And that's why I'm asking you what it would take to start your own religion. I want you to start dissecting the motives of people around you, not so you're distrustful, but so you're protected. And uh, that's important because Christopher Namelka, one of the things he will do, uh, he will go to singles dances in LDS singles works. And they sort of describe him as a Fabio prophet. He's got like long golden hair and sort of a chiseled jaw. And sometimes he cuts it and it, he looks like a surfer boy and He's very dynamic, and he'll go to these dances, at least for a time when he was still of age to do this, and he'll find women who are vulnerable, who are maybe just divorced, maybe women who in the LDS church are in their late 30s or 40s, and there's this whole marriage culture, so they feel like a failure, even though it's completely normal outside the realm of Mormonism. You know, being a 30-year-old woman not married, has an intense amount of pressure and stigma attached to it. So he finds women like this and he will date them and until they fall in love and then he reveals that he, you know, wants them to be his polygamous wife. This is his MO. And in fact, he has a lot of followers in our online communities, in our uh, live life communities that come and represent themselves as like-minded people 
And then as they build a relationship of trust, I've met these people in person, so I'm talking from experience. They're waiting to sort of bring you into the Namalka's fold. And one of the things that they'll tell you, which they told me, is uh, it's not a religion. It's not a religion. It's just a way of thinking. It's just a mindset. It's just, you know, social ethics and living life. And, I mean, there's a whole complicated history with Namalka, but he... He's done some stuff. So he translates the sealed portion. He spreads it around. Uh, he starts a foundation that's supposed to end poverty. I'm trying to remember the name. Oh, it's the Worldwide United Foundation. I have it right here in front of me. This supposed to have all the answers to poverty, even though it completely flies on the face of every Mormon, I mean, every global activist, academic research ever done. And there's... Just like with everything with Namalka, like, there are 99% of garbage and weird, crazy stuff. But then there's 1%, like, of great stuff. So, like, Namalka will do this and he'll have 1% of social justice that will speak to you, that you'll say, yeah, that's right, I actually do agree that all people are created equal or, or whatever it is. So, Namalka has published some things. You can see this in the timeline. He actually writes about and confesses that he doesn't actually, he didn't actually translate the sealed portion, he just wrote it. And it made a lot of his followers mad, and yet people still followed him, right? There was something so likable about him. And then um, he wrote, Deceive or Be Deceived, and he describes how he mimics Joseph Smith, and you can find more about this in the timeline, but he says, quote, With my new enlightenment, I decided to use the techniques used by other religious leaders to start my own religion. I decided to choose the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith Jr. as my mentor. I wanted to start where he left off. In his time, Joseph realized that he could present any of his religious views to a society that was so entrenched in the Bible as the Word of God. Any mention of a religious view which did not agree with the written text of the Bible wouldn't have a hope of being heard. Joseph found a way around this, make his own Bible and present it as an inspired work which he had been chosen by God himself to do. That is exactly what he did. Because I had chosen Joseph Smith as my mentor, that is exactly what I was going to do. Being about the same age as Joseph Smith was when he began his scripture writing and having not much more education than he did, I proceeded with the process of writing scripture. process seemed fun at first, and I'm impressed myself at my ability to do it. This book outlines a process which I chose and also presents to the world my scripture. From reading this book, the reader will come to know the potential I had, if I were to continue my deception, to deceive and bring under my own power of persuasion many people. The Absolute Truth of the Book of Mormon? The book is a work of Joseph Smith, and some others believed in what he was trying to do in this religious world. There was no gold plates, Angel Moroni, or Urim and Thummim. There is a logical reason why Joseph Smith did what he did. I have written a book entitled Deceive or Be Deceived. I hope the work will help the reader understand that humans needs to have religion and certain other individuals needs to give it to them, end quote. Now keep in mind, after he writes this, he doesn't stop continuing to amass followers. He meets um, several women. He would go do these conferences, sometimes at Salt Lake Public Library and other places where he would hold these conferences and people would come. And at one of the conferences, a woman comes. Her name is Victoria Prunty. Now, she uh, leaves a polygamous marriage. She, she would later start Tapestry Against Polygamy, which is an anti-polygamous group. 
And it's funny because her sister, Mary, ba- her sister wife, Mary Bachelor, starts Principal Voices with Anne Wilde, which is a pro-polygamy group. So they each start their own polygamy group. One's anti, one is pro. But Vicky Prunty meets Demelka in 1993. She's still sort of spiritually married to her other husband, from what I understand. And he marries her in polygamy. He marries Vicky and Prunty in polygamy. Now, it's really controversial. Sanjay Bhattacharya talks a lot about this, but his his version of events has been contested by some of the people involved. They think that they were mischaracterized. There are all kinds of um, accusations, but it's interesting to know that for a time, Vicky Prunty, our principal voices, was involved with Christopher Namelka as a plural wife. Now, Namelka denies that he is involved in polygamy at all. Um, but of course, like we talk about in that book that I mentioned earlier, uh, Different Drum, there's this idea that in a communal setting, this sort of sexual energy has to be accounted for. And in Mormon fundamentalism, more often than not, it is played out through experimenting with polygamy. So this is what Namelka does. Now, probably most famous, so I'm going to mention this before we end on him, uh, is the story of Ida Smith. Now, Ida Smith, again, when I give my sort of warning about how this could happen to anyone, this is what I'm talking about. Ida Smith is a really interesting case for me. Ida Smith is the great-great-granddaughter of Hiram Smith. Now, what makes her interesting is that she is not a dumb woman by any means. Now, I'm going to link to this article in City Weekly where Ida Smith uh, talks about her experience, but it should be noted that by the time Ida Smith meets Christopher Namalka, he's already recanted a lot of his stuff. So, just keep that in mind. The power that sort of dynamic personalities in Mormonism have, right? So, it's 2007 in February, and Ida Smith, the great-great-granddaughter of Hiram Smith, is attending a lecture at the Salt Lake City Public Library about Mary Magdalene. She's super smart. She was uh, she was very well-connected. Uh, in 1978, the LDS Church asked her to set up and run the Women's Research Institute at BYU. She accepted the position and was just a power academic. She was great. She was very well-connected. She, uh, M. Russell Ballard, uh, apostle in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the LDS Church is her cousin. She's well-connected to the Smith family, obviously. And uh, she's friends with politicians like Bob Bennett, who's a Republican, who was a former uh, senator here. And she's just, you know, beloved woman. So it's said that what happens is she's here having um, this conference with Mary Magdalene, and she runs into her cousin, Julie Taggart. Now, Julie Taggart had left the LDS church saying that she sort of becomes disillusioned from it. And now remember when I'm talking about vulnerability, that it just takes a vulnerable moment and a charismatic personality and this sort of love for making people our authority figures. Well, Ida Smith does this. Now, I don't know if any of you out there remember, but Gordon B. Hinckley around, if my memory serves, I think it's around 2005, gives this sort of Book of Mor- the Book of Mormon challenge, right? And he claims in it, I would, I would actually encourage everyone to look this up. It's August of 2005, and uh, I remember hearing this and feeling such power. I'm going to read you a little bit, the end part of his talk. 
This is Gordon B. Hinckley. He says, As I indicated earlier, at this season exactly 176 years ago, the first edition of the Book of Mormon, which had been translated by the, the gift and power of God, was being set in type and run on a small press in Palmyra, New York. Its publication proceeded and was a forerunner in the organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which took place on April 6, 1830. We studied the Book of Mormon in Sunday school this past year. Nonetheless, I offer a challenge to members of the church throughout the world and to our friends everywhere to read or reread the Book of Mormon. If you will read a bit more than one and one-half chapters a day, you will be able to finish the book before the end of this year. Very near the end of its 239 chapters, you will find a challenge issued by the prophet Moroni as he completed his record nearly 16 centuries ago. Said he, quote, And I exhort you to remember these things, for the time speedily cometh that ye shall know that I lie not. For ye shall see me at the bar of God, and the Lord God will say unto you, Did I not declare my words unto you, which were written by this man, like as one crying from the dead, yea, even one speaking out of the dust? And God shall show unto you that which I have written is true. And that's Moroni 10, 27, 29. Without reservation, I promise you that if each of you will observe this simple program, regardless of how many times you previously may have read the Book of Mormon, there will come into your lives and into your homes an added measure of the Spirit of the Lord, a strength and resolution to walk in the obedience of the commandments, and a stronger testimony of the living reality of the Son of God. And then, of course, uh, he, that is, um, there, there's this whole culture that comes about this. I remember this. We were promised in, in our own Sunday school that if we all read this, if the power of everyone reading the scriptures, imagine how it could change the world. And of course, in Hinckley's talk, he, you know, he starts out his talk talking about the history of the Book of Mormon and talks about how there's so much work left to be done. And I remember that power, uh, I did the Book of Mormon Challenge, and it, and it ended quite differently for me, but that's a whole other story for a different podcast. But Ida Smith is thinking on this challenge. Now, Ida Smith claims that for years and years and years, she has always thought and been troubled by the sealed portion. Uh, it's something that's rested with her. And, you know, the sort of Hiram family tradition struggles with these questions. So she would pray that it would be restored. And she remembers when Hinckley gives a speech that the Book of Mormon challenge was a reference to this. And if if everyone would pray and read their scriptures, the LDS church would finally receive the sealed portion. So she does this. She jumps in. But in April of 2006, at conference, she's waiting for this announcement, thinking, Okay, we've all done this. We've all read, you know, it's been almost a year. Where is this announcement? And nothing happens. So she's hurting, and she's vulnerable. And she meets her cousin, Julie Taggart, at the Salt Public Library. And Julie says, yeah, I get angry, too. I get angry at promises, too. But let me show you something better. And Taggart gave to Ida Smith. The sealed portion, final testament of Jesus Christ. Nemelka says the book uses, quote, religious prose and symbolism to explain how advanced human beings have interacted with humankind throughout the history of the earth, end quote. Now, Ida Smith becomes a true believer. 
this is a long, complicated story, but basically she ends up signing over her will, her trust, uh, all of her property to Namelka, and probably the most notorious and controversial is uh, there's a family plot with Smith, uh, you know, all the Smith family buried there, and there's this uh, monument to Hiram and Joseph Smith, and Ida's plot is next to that, and she signed over her plot to Christopher Namelka to be buried there, and of course he erects a headstone dedicated to Hiram Smith, saying he's Hiram Smith, and uh, never to be one that is tacky, puts his website on both of the, the headstones, and you can go see that at the Smith family plot. It's been a source of contention, so much so that Ida was both excommunicated from the church, LDS church, and her family has cut her off mostly. LDS apostle Holland called her and he said, please don't record this, please don't record this, and she recorded it anyway. And in the conversation, he allegedly tells her about Namelka, quote, this guy is a wacko. He is just not in touch with reality. And he told her, you know, that it would be wonderful if the LDS church would receive the two-thirds of the gold plates, you know, the silk portion. But he said, quote, it wouldn't come from somebody down at Joe's Bar and Grill. If we really believe there's an order and a priesthood in the church, it's going to come to the priesthood of the church in the form of prophecy, end quote. They, of course, the family also sends out Senator Bennett, and uh, Bennett has written, had written a book about his journey to prove that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, and she asked him to read the still portion, and he said, quote, I'm convinced beyond any reasonable doubt that Namelka's works are forgeries, and they're kind of out of standstill. It's, it's kind of sad, and uh, you can read all about that. There's there's a lot of articles. You can read the timeline. They kind of keep you posted on what he's, he's going on and doing. There are some very terrible accusations out there about him, um, and you can read Sanjeev Bhattacharya's book for those. But he still amasses a follower, many followers. Uh, he claims to live in poverty and to work at Walmart and uh, to be your every man's man. And sometimes he re- he's a religious leader and sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's polygamous and sometimes he's not. But what I'm saying is when we ask these questions at the beginning of the podcast, Namelka always also has some interesting answers to these. What things do you take and what things do you leave? And what things, how do you do this? Sanjeev Bhattacharya is absolutely convinced after spending a lot of time with Namelka that Namelka, unlike Harmston, is a fraud, that he is purposely and willfully deceiving the members. And uh, it's interesting when we think about motives. Okay. Going on to another group. This is a group that I sort of lament not being able to talk about. And we might talk about it a little bit more when we talk about the FLDS. But this is the Bountiful Group in Canada. And I have sort of a soft spot in them because there's a great, I believe it's National Geographic documentary, which I'm going to link to, which you should all watch. It's on YouTube. It's free. And it's really well well done. And it talks about this Bountiful Group. And... There's a there's a whole complicated history, so just just watch the documentary. Honestly, basically, what you need to know is there's the FLDS Church who have a breakoff group, which is Centennial Park. Centennial Park calls themselves the Second Ward because FLDS was the first ward. So the Bountiful Group is a breakoff group from the FLDS. They are located in Creston Valley in, in British Columbia, Canada. 
near Cranbrook and Creston. The settlement is named after Bountiful in the Book of Mormon. As early as 1946, there were people living there. I, I do have to say this, that in studying all these groups, anywhere that Mormonism touches, anywhere, from Mexico on up to Canada to Missouri and Kirtland, you will find these fundamentalist groups. If you don't think they're by you, they are by you. They are everywhere. There are many, many, many of them. And we can kind of see why the church is correlated. I mean, we always talk about correlation being such a negative thing because it strips the church of a lot of its beauty. But from an administration sort of point, when people take these doctrines and do these things with them, you can also see the sort of burden of responsibility you would feel to, to end that. So the Blackmore family is living there. It's said that um, of all the people that are living there, uh, I think in 1998 it was estimated that there was a thousand people living in this settlement, that all these a thousand people have derived from the same six men. And basically what happened was the FLDS, even though they're centralized in Colorado City, they have groups in other places, just like the AUB does, and just like other fundamentalist groups that have a lot of people, they have a centralized location, and then they have other people living. Well, it's the same thing with the FLDS. A lot of controversy was happening. Uh, this group was living there. They were loyal to the FLDS. There was a man named Winston Blackmore. He was a leader. Um, he was a prominent leader. He was a bishop in the FLDS. He was loyal to Warren Jeffs. It's said that he married some underage wives. He claims later, he's sort of cagey about it, but he claims that in, so, in some ways he's just as much as a, a victim of Warren Jeffs as the women were because they were all coerced, manipulated, and threatened into the system. And he he starts to go against his conscience some of the things that Warren Jeffs is doing. And of course, this becomes a problem because the entire settlement, settlement in Bountiful is very loyal to the FLDS church. So it's complicated, but basically what happens is um, it's said that Jeffs was trying to force an underage marriage of a young, young girl. I believe she was 14. And she doesn't want to marry this older, older man. And she flees to Bountiful. And Warren Jeffs is said to allegedly have put a blood atonement hit on her, which means that her throat needs to be cut because she's violated this. Now, when this happens, this really shakes up. Winston Blackmore and his family, and they come to sort of stand still with Warren Jeffs. Now, to defy the prophet in FLDS church, as we're going to talk about, is a huge deal. I mean, a huge deal. If you defy the prophet, even in a small way, it could be in an innocent way. There are stories of men doing nothing and being accused of all these crimes that they didn't commit. Their wives are taken away from them as if they were a house or property, and so are their children, and they're assigned to other men sometimes in less than 24 hours. It's a huge problem. So for Winston Blackmore to, to stand up against a prophet to protect this young girl was a huge risk. But something remarkable happened. His wives and family decided to stay with them. He, he recalls in the documentary sitting around the table with all of his, they call him his ladies. He's in all of his ladies. It's an FLDS term. Sit around the table and he says, you guys have a choice. You can stay in peace or go in peace, meaning you can go back to the FLDS church. And they all decided to stay. And it's proved to be a good move for them. By my research, I mean, Winston Blackmore has been in trouble with the law for practicing polygamy in Canada. But charges were dropped. It's been this ongoing legal battle. But for the most part, he's as progressive 
as any sort of polygamist fundamentalist group can be. He strongly, strongly uh, speaks out against underage marriages. There's a sense of regret for the marriages that he participated in. Um, he is against incest. He's against um, violating the law. He's against uh, forced marriages. Even in his community, they do not have arranged marriages. And um, they, at least in the documentary, they appear progressive. I have read sort of other, you know, you know, uh, less flattering pieces about him. But by most accounts, he seems like trying to live his conscience, trying to be a good guy. He seems like a nice, peaceful, decent man, and his, his wives appear to be happy. Now, there are women that have left the group that uh, say that as children they were forgotten about and they were misled, but Winston seems to be driven by his conscience. So I would encourage you to look that up and to read more about that, and maybe we'll talk more about the Blackmore group when we talk about the FLDS. But it should be noted that that split divided the community in half. So many of their family, the FLDS family, cannot, not just that they won't, but they have to shun the Blackmores, because if they are even seen talking to the Blackmores, they could lose their family. It's pretty painful. Now there's one more group I want to pay a little bit more attention to, but uh, you can pay attention to them in depth later because they're sort of this cult following, if you will, to use that term, about this story. Of course, most notoriously so in John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven. And I would recommend reading that book if you want to know the story that I'm going to tell you because it is in, goes into depth about the story quite well. And I believe that the Infants and Thrones podcast also did an episode on the Lafferty Brothers, and that is who I'm going to talk about. When we talk about answering these questions, starting with the religion, this is also an interesting story. Now, it's complicated, and I'm not going to be so reductive, so if you are fans or fanatics of this story, I apologize. I'm going to be leaving a lot out. That's what Krakauer's book is for. Go ahead and read that. But basically, there's this group. They're the School of the Prophets. It's So the School of the Prophets started out uh, by a man named Robert C. Crossfield. And, of course, he was having a similar study group that we talked about. He was located in Salem, Utah, and he started believing he was receiving revelations. And he compiles them in a book of, called the Book of Onias. Meanwhile, uh, there are other members, the guy that started the Dream Mine, you can look that up, that's a whole other story of fundamentalism. He's involved. Uh, there is, of course, Dan Lafferty. Now, Dan Lafferty was a man that grew up in the LDS Church. Sort of the same fundamentalist story, starts to become disillusioned, wants more meat than milk, starts finding out stuff. He finds a text called The Peacemaker. Now, I've avoided talking about this because I think that most Mormon scholars have sort of debunked the credibility of this. But the Peacemaker is basically a pamphlet that was written by a man named Udley Hay Jacob in 1842. 1842. Now, it was published in Nauvoo, Illinois, with uh, Joseph Smith Jr. and his publisher as publishing print, his print press listed as the printer. Now, what's interesting is the pamphlet 
uh, advocates for polygamy. And it's sort of, you know, this really strict, misogynistic view of polygamy. It has a lot of really strict ideas about who women are and what they should do. It deals a lot with biblical marriage laws. And, of course, Joseph Smith would denounce the pamphlet on December 1st, 1842. But it's been surrounded in controversy. And at the time, before there was a lot known about this pamphlet, Dan Lafferty stumbles upon this in special collections uh, at the Harold Bealey Library at BYU. Of course, he's perusing these to find what the church has been hiding, and he finds the peacemaker. He reads it. He sees the pen name Adni Jacob, which is a strange name, a name he's never heard of. And, and he sees that it's printed by Joseph Smith, so he becomes convinced that Joseph Smith was using a pen name. Now, he would be wrong about that, but he becomes obsessed with it, and he starts enacting with his own wife at home these biblical marriage laws. Terrible stuff. Uh, they can't drive, they, they can't uh, be alone with men, they have to dress a certain way, yada, yada, yada. He's, he tries to talk her into polygamy. At one point, he is going to sell off one of his daughters to another man in school prophets. Anyway, so the school prophets are getting together. It started as a study group. They become obsessed with this. They pour all their energy, these men do, into the school of prophets. Now, of course, the school of prophets is sort of mimicking the school of prophets that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and possibly some of the other presidents of the LDS church had, where they would get together. And it was this idea that it was a school of prophets, that people could receive revelation. You would bring your revelation to the table, and people would vote on it, right? It's not really something that is done, although you could argue that the LDS Church, Quorum of the Twelve, Quorum of the Fifteen, works similarly today. Anyway, they uh, Dan Lafferty gets his brothers obsessed with this as well. Now, I believe uh, there are six Lafferty brothers, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, he only gets a few of his brothers involved. Now, their youngest brother, Alan, they wanted to get involved, and he was sympathetic towards a lot of their ideas. But Alan was married to a woman named Brenda. Brenda was smart. She was accomplished. She was really young, but she was really articulate. She was uh, a newscaster on you know, the local PBS station, and she had big dreams to become a newscaster. But she gets pregnant and has a baby, so she's staying home doing the Mormon wife thing. She prevents Alan from going full fundamentalist with the Lafferty brothers. And the Lafferty brothers start to resent Brenda heavily for this. Meanwhile, Dan is convincing the brothers that are into it, namely Ron, his brother Ron, um, to encourage him to have his wife's, his wife live these strict biblical laws as well. So Ron, who is said to be a really decent guy, really decent husband, starts to do this and he is he is said to have changed and um becomes super controlling his marriage is terrible and his wife decides she needs to leave now with Brenda Alan's wife's help her sister-in-law Brenda helps Ron's wife leave Ron she takes the kids and they move to Florida Ron grows increasingly resentful of Brenda just seething with rage. In fact, he blames not only Brenda, but he blames her state president for helping her get financial assistance to help her get out, and he blames another friend of the family. 
and he decides in the School of Prophets, basically, that he has this revelation. He starts having revelations where he sits at the computer and he types. It's kind of like a Ouija board where he's sitting at the computer and he waits for a letter and then the letter appears on the screen. Basically, around this time, I believe Dan tells Ron that Ron is supposed to be, you know, the next prophet of the LDS Church and he's going to usher in the second coming. He's the one mighty and strong. So Ron really gets caught up in this. He believes in his revelations, and he eventually has what's called the removal revelation. He writes it out on yellow notebook paper or yellow legal pad, and it's basically that three people need to die. And one of those people happens to be Brenda. The other is the state president, and the other is the woman that was uh, the friend. And I'm going to read from the City Weekly article on them entitled Blood Brothers, which I have also linked to. It said, written out on yellow notepad, this removal revelation that Ron said he'd received from God showed God and Ron shared some common enemies, namely Brenda. Brenda was not afraid to tell Ron her opinion, that he was a jerk to his wife and that she didn't want him anywhere around her husband, Alan, Watson Jr. said. She didn't pull any punches. Ron says that Brenda should have should not have meddled in his private affairs and should have come to him as the head of his household instead of going behind his back and sowing discord with Ron's wife. Anyway, Dan says, Ron shows this revelation to Dan. Dan says, okay, we'll just make sure it's of God, you know, cause, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to do anything like this in case it's not of God. Krakauer talks about this in his book, but basically, in the removal of Revelation, it uses sort of Old Testament language, and it says that Brenda and her baby Erica have to be removed. And, of course, the Lafferty brothers really drew on this idea that comes from the Book of Mormon of where faithful Nephi goes and has to cut off the head of Laban, right? And taken in the context, when you compare it to the Lafferty situation, it was even interesting for me to sort of process this story because I always looked at Nephi as this good, pure character. And I forget what he did, right? He cut off a guy's head to take his plates, even though, like, you know, an angel could translate them for you. But Nephi had to do this. And yet we see Nephi as like this pinnacle of faithfulness, of Mormon faithfulness. Dan Lafferty really sees himself in this way. And in fact, later on, he would have a revelation that he was Nephi. I believe the term was uh, Ron, who has the removal revelation, is the voice of the Lord, and Dan, his brother, is the arm of the Lord. Now, they take this revelation to the School of the Prophets. They present it. Most of the prophets in the School of Prophets are horrified. They go so far as one has a notarized uh, affidavit that he signs where he says that he's worried that Dan Lafferty and Ron Lafferty are going to cause harm to a number of individuals, and he is not involved. Of course, he files that away in his desk drawer. He doesn't take it to the authorities. He just keeps it should he be um, you know, implicated. And, of course, the Lafferty's in the School of Prophets part ways. The Lafferty brothers drive around to different fundamentalist groups. They uh, pick up some drifters. and. Um, Ron Lafferty decides that on July 24th, on Pioneer Day, he has to fulfill the removal revelation. Now, he originally thinks that he has to be the one to do it. He actually even gives Brenda's husband, Alan, a heads up. And Alan says, what? I don't understand. Why the baby? And uh, according to 
John Krakauer, Ron would say, she has to be killed because she would grow up to be a bitch like her mother. So, Alan says, well, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to protect them with my life. Of course, he doesn't let Brendan know, and he doesn't let the authorities know either, which her family to this day still remains confused and very pained about. So they drive around, decide July 24th is the day to do it. They go to the house, and Dan says in the book that he is praying on the way there, saying, please, Lord, show me a sign if this is really what you want us to do. If not, end this now before it's too late. They go to the house, they knock on the door, and nobody answers. Nobody is home. And Ron seems so confused by this because he just knew this was what the Lord wanted. But nobody answers. So they get in their car and start to drive away, befuddled. Dan begins to contemplate if maybe this is the answer. And then a sort of peace washes over him. And he turns the car around and everyone says, what are you doing? And he he... He tells the story as if it's a spiritual experience that you would hear over testimony meeting. Someone who's saying, yeah, I just knew to get off the freeway at the right time. And sure enough, a big accident happened. He tells a story like that. He drives back to the house. He knocks on the door. And uh, he goes back in the car. And of course, Ron goes back up to the door. And Brenda answers this time. Ron asks to use her phone. He asks her about some other questions. She says, no, please go away. He forces his way in. Dan eventually comes in. They beat her up pretty badly. And without going into the gory details, they blood atone the young baby in a horrific way. And later, Brenda Lafferty as well. Uh, they decide to go carry out the rest of the removal revelation. Um, Instead, they just ransack a house, and uh, they eventually get caught before anyone else is killed. But Brenda and her baby are blood atoned. And John Krakauer has received a lot of criticism from LDS officials for drawing conclusions from Mormon history to the Lafferty case. And it's true that he does take some very ungenerous conclusions, but there are some that are fair, like the Book of Mormon comparison and sort of this frontier violence and this sort of blood atonement. It's a really interesting uh, thing to experience. So I would recommend that if you want to know more about the Lafferty's. There, of course, is a lot more to that story. In fact, sadly so, it just recently made the the news when a Utah couple became, became obsessed with Dan Lafferty, who is serving two consecutive life terms in the Draper prison. Uh, one of the women, the, the wife of this couple, became obsessed with Dan Lafferty, said she fell in love with him. His name was Christy Stack. She was only six years old when the original murder happened. But her and her husband, Benjamin, sort of believed in this apocalyptic you know, worldview, and they sort of get caught up into this. Dan Lafferty's influencing them. He's said to have even cut off, like, his, his beard, because he had had a long beard and a braid, and he cut that off and gave it to her. And in a very sad turn of events, Christy Stack and her husband, Benjamin, and three of their children, uh, Benson, who was 14, Emery, who was 12, and Zion, who was 11, were found dead September 27th. They had overdosed on a concoction of methadone and cold medicine. 
to bring in the, the last days. And of course, Dan Lafferty sort of flippantly claimed credit for this. And again, this speaks to this dynamic leader. I mean, you, you say, how can people do this? But even John Krakauer in talking about Dan Lafferty says there's something kind in his eyes, you know, and in the way he talks about killing this baby. So he said it's as if he's t- recounting a story going to the grocery store. Absolutely no remorse, believing it's what God asked him to do. Mormonism is strong potion. Fundamentalism can make people do some crazy things. It's not just people of other faiths. Christianity absolutely has it too. So those are the groups I want to focus the most on. And now I'm just going to kind of go over a list. This, of course, is not comprehensive. It's just some that stood out to me. Okay, so for the list of groups in no particular order, there is the Church of Jesus Christ in Solemn Assembly. It was formed by Alexander Joseph in 1974 after he left the Apostolic United Brethren, the AUB. He had been a prominent leader. Uh, he sort of decided to homestead federal land, but was denied access. He moved to Kane County, Utah, established a new town in, that was called Big Water, and that's the current location of their church's headquarters. Several hundred families still inhibit it. He died in late 1990, um, and it said that he had ten wives, but he passed it on to his son. Um... There's a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the Kingdom of God. This was founded by Frank Naylor and Ivan Nelson. Um, they call themselves the Third Ward or the Naylor Group. So their break off from the Centennial Park Group, which is a break off from FLDS. So FLDS is considered the first ward. Centennial Park is considered the second ward. And this new group, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the Kingdom of God or the Naylor-Nelson Group, is the third ward. They call themselves the third ward. They claim authority from John W. Woolley. And they have, you know, they have a whole story. They have a whole timeline. They believe the law of consecration, Adam-God doctrine. And they have a close relationship with the Bountiful group that I talked about. Speaking of Canada, there's the Church of Jesus Christ Restored in Ontario. It's a small sect in um Canada. It was founded in the late 1960s by Stanley M. King and is currently led by his son, Fred King. It supposedly has under 40 members. What's fascinating about this group is it's an actual breakoff group of the RLDS Church, the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now called the Community of Christ. Now, they practice polygamy, which the RLDS Church was vehemently against, but what's interesting is to see the dynamics of this church that has the Mormon fundamentals that Joseph Smith taught without the Brighamite doctrine. It's really interesting. And these guys have similar practices, but like their terminology, for example, is different. They have church wives instead of spiritual wives, but they have, you know, the united order and um, plural marriage and they they have this weird conglomeration of RLDS beliefs and LDS beliefs. It's very interesting. They were uh, investigated by the Ontario Provincial Police, and um, there were some charges. There were some charges about, uh, you know, sexual exploitation, sexual interference, three counts of sexual assault bodily harm, yada, yada, yada. They've had some problems with the law. There's the Righteous Branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Christ Church, Inc. 
This is a small group of 100 people 80 miles west of St. George in Modena. This group was founded by Gerald Peterson, who has since died, and of course the son has taken over. They claim that the ghosts of Rulon Allred, who was the leader of the AUB group, basically that Rulon Allred, the ghost of him, comes to Gerald Peterson and says, I'm going to restore the priesthood. What's interesting is, you know, when the LDS Church gives uh, ordination to men of African descent and removes the temple ban for African people, this causes a lot of the internal racism that's brewing within Mormonism and in Mormon theology to have you know, all weird kinds of interesting things happen. And, of course, this is something we don't talk a lot about because there's not a lot of research about it because I think a lot of people are afraid to touch this, but a lot of the fundamental groups are inherently, systemically, and vehemently racist. I'm going to cover this a lot in FLDS, but it is so disgusting to talk about. But this is a part of it. And this particular group, the Righteous Branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, when you know, the church, the LDS church lifts this ban. They decide to build a temple in the shape of a pyramid, and it's still out there. There is also the Church of Jesus Christ in Zion, and this originated in Independence, Missouri. It's headed by Roger Billings, and he is actually a very smart, interesting man. He's a scientist, an engineer, an inventor, and he actually um, had a a business, the Billings Business Computer, that he invented, and it was an early competitor of Apple. And he was one of the originator of many of the ideas of the spreadsheets, debt, databases, etc. He now has his own group where they practice the doctrine of polygamy, as well as other fundamentalist teachings. And some of the numbers of his group range from around 1,000 to 1,500 to 2,000 people. This group is supposedly active on the internet, and they have a site, and they do a lot of sermon broadcasts using technology. So that's interesting. Then there's another group called the Original Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This group was a splinter group that happened shortly after the death of Joseph Smith, and these guys are known as the Strangites. And they're not necessarily polygamists, but they're very sympathetic towards polygamists. If you come to Sunstone, you can meet uh, sometimes several, one or two of the Strangites here. They seem to be dwindling. There's another church called Christ of the Firstborn. This is the Tom Green group. He made a lot of news for marrying underage brides and abuse and that kind of thing. He was sent to prison in August of 2001 to serve two consecutive five-year sentences for polygamy, rape of a child, one count of uh, criminal non-support of his 28 children, and since he was arrested, I guess it broke up the group quite a bit. But um, it's supposedly sort of a collective of a hundred or so independents. That story is a pretty dark story, so uh, you can look up Tom Green. There's a lot of news articles on him. There's Jesus Christ of the United Order Group. This sect is uh, located in Sacramento, Folsom, California. The leader, Luis Alberto Gonzalez, has been accused of a lot of things, including spousal rape, stalking, and sexual abuse of a child. They don't know who the current leader of the group is, but their focus in the past has been converting non-English-speaking Hispanics to their group. Another really interesting one is the Sons of Amun Israel. This group is led by David Israel, also known as Gilbert Clark. He was originally a member of the AUB and now has a splinter group of his own. These guys have this weird soup of different ideas. It's sort of Gnostic, 
Kabbalistic, occultic, uh, Mormon theology all mixed up. So Sons Amun, Israel, is sort of this new age Mormon religious colony living out in the high Mesa deserts in northern Arizona near the Utah border, near Colorado City. Its leader, David Israel, who is also Gilbert Clark from San Antonio, Texas, claims that he was visit- visited by the Ancient of Days, also known as Amun, also known as Heavenly Father. And he was visited by Amun's son, Jesus Christ, also known as Son Amun. They sort of have this Joseph Smith parallel story where he claims that Nephi delivers a sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, which they call the Oracles of Mahanrai. And it's very hypnostic, Kabbalistic. And the oracles praise Joseph Smith and Mormonism and sort of detail some of their beliefs. Some of their beliefs include sexual communism and the belief in the occult arts. And I think even David Bowie <laughs> talks about this in his occultic Latter-day Saint movement religious page on his website. Uh, they use the Book of Law, which is an interesting book. It's by Aleister Crowley, who is a notorious Satanist. But they use his book. The Sons Amen Israel is derived from the account of LDS Apostle Orson Pratt, in which he reports that Joseph Smith told him the pure language of God. This is sort of a Masonic thing too, but basically the idea is God has a true name, and there's a pure language of heaven. And in that language, God is Amen, and Jesus Christ is Son Amen. And so they have this whole thing with that. And there's, they're mixed in, I mean, I think Amen is supposed to be derived from the word in their view of Amen, which literally means truth. And so it's a fulfillment of scripture. And they derive a lot of sort of ancient occultic mixed with Egyptology sort of beliefs. So that's that group. Uh, there's the Church of Christ Patriarchal. This is another splinter group of the AUB. It's not widely known, but uh, basically their their leader, John Bryant, who was born in 1946, founded this group, which is currently residing in Salem, Oregon. And uh, he had a falling out with the AUB. He began believing he received revelations from Jesus, including that Joseph, or sorry, John the Beloved had visited him and instructed him to form the Order of the Ancients. And so... And he claims in this vision he was taken to the city of Enoch, where AUB founder Joseph White Musser and Joseph Smith Jr. ordained him to the presidency of the church. So we're seeing this in sort of the new fundamentalism. The old fundamentalism derived their authority from the LDS church, right? We trace our line sort of this way. But a lot of these new sects are claiming their own authority, saying that they've had a revelation and God has restored it, you know, the keys to them somehow. Uh, they've kind of gone back and forth. They've been in Nevada. They had some problems. Um, so they located to Marion County near Salem. And, uh, I believe a lot of his church disintegrated, but, uh, there's supposedly in the 90s, 120 families. So I don't know where they're at now. There is a group called the Celestial Church. Not a lot is known about them, but they're in the Midwest. Their website claims around 60,000 inherit adherents all over the United States. That is doubtful. However, they do provide audio sermons and also a polygamy dating service, which is quite popular, which you can find online. Um, let's see what other groups we have on my list. 
tired of these groups yet. There's this is this is one that's really interesting. I talked about the, our LDS group. There are actually a lot of Christian evangelical Christian groups that believe in biblical law and have started to practice polygamy. But what is fascinating, some of the most popular of those groups, and I don't have time to get into all of those, but some of them were actually started in Utah and influenced by Mormon fundamentalists. So it's really interesting to see how far and wide the reach of Joseph Smith's polygamy has gone. It's it's really interesting. Um, There are also groups in Humansville, Missouri. Now, this is called the Missouri Group. There are some ties to the Kingston Group. Basically, in Humansville, it's supposed to be this co-op of all these different groups. Not a lot is known about them. Um, Ann Wilde provided me with some information about them where they just say, you know, it's not a religious group, but we're all here, you know, as independents practicing polygamy, and it's sort of a co-op, an order of heaven, and we just try to all coexist together. So that's another... That's another interesting group that we don't know a lot about. There have been some controversies. Well, but actually, um, I know several people, one in particular that's a good friend, whose family, I believe in the 80s or 90s, moved out to Missouri. This is not an uncommon story. There was sort of this Saturday's warrior type fervor going on where the end of days was near and, you know, they were raising this elect generation and they wanted to can and, you know, relive those pioneer days and a lot of people did these study groups and they moved to Missouri and consecrate their time and talents, faithful LDS people. And this led to some people getting sucked into fundamentalism, getting excommunicated, that kind of thing. Um, there is the Church of the Firstborn and the General Assembly of Heaven. It was organized in Magna, Utah by former members of the LDS Church. It practices polygamy and the law of consecration. The leader, Terrell R. Dalton purports to be the Holy Ghost and the Father of Jesus. However, it's said that the group has probably declined in numbers because it's relocated uh, from Idaho to Montana. And his assistant, uh, Jody Harmon, was arrested on two convictions of rape. Um, Fred Collier, he's an interesting one. Uh, he established the Church of the Firstborn. Um, after leaving the LDS Church and later the LeBaron Group. And he moved to a secluded town in Hannah, Utah, and began attracting followers. And he um, lived what they call the, the Doctrine of Total Commitment. And Fred Collier is someone you want to look up to. He has a fascinating story. Um, there's the Peterson Group which is the righteous branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Branch Church, Christ Church, and this is related to Gerald Peterson as well. I'm trying to think. Oh, this is one that you have to look up. If you're going to look up anything on the website, don't just look up the documentary. You have to look up the Church of the Rock. This is fantastic. There's a small community of fundamentalist Mormons, just about 15 polygamists and monogamous families, that have established a really unique home for themselves. They live in modern homes literally carved in the side of massive sandstone rock in the desert south of Moab, Utah. Now, if you go into Moab, Utah, there's a, there's a place called Hole in the Rock, and you can see where this guy, like, blasted out a house there. And you go and you see, like, these weird books about Joseph Smith on his shelf. You can take a tour. It's it's really interesting. But this kind of gives you a sense of what it's like living at the rock. Um, the Rockland Ranch, informally called The Rock, was founded about 35, 40 years ago by Robert Dean Foster. 
Now, Robert was like a seminary teacher. I just spoke to someone recently who was one of his students and was like a roommate with one of his eventual wives at BYU and uh, just talked about like what a nice guy he was, but he was into this like milk or sorry, meat before milk idea and really wanted to study it. By all accounts, a really nice guy. But he moves his family, starts his community. They start blasting out this rock. And I have pictures on the site. It's fascinating, amazing, stunning photos of this these families that live there. And uh, I was most impressed by Sanjeev Bhattacharya's account because he went there before uh, Foster. I think Foster's passed away. But just said, you know, this guy was a really nice guy and these people coexisted. They seem to really live on sort of this idea that I picture polygamy was, was meant to be in the idealism, like these people trying to live, they work the land together. It's a small, tight-knit community. They're open. Uh, there's not a lot of, like, crazy marital practices. It's just families trying to live off the land and be good people. And as far as I know, I could be wrong. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. But there doesn't seem to be any sort of sinister things going on at the Rock. And uh, I would encourage you to learn more about it because it's a fascinating look. I think from what I studied, and again, I could be wrong, but from what I've studied, this is as good as polygamy gets, right? Aside from the fact they're living in, you know, in a rock, but it's kind of cool, especially when you see these pictures. It's kind of awesome. So uh, definitely look up the Church of the Rock. It's fascinating. There are also a bunch of independent fundamentalists, too many to name. Some of them are Ogden Kraut, who I talked about, who was the prolific fundamentalist author and had, you know, a printing house that was married to, you know, Ann Wilde. And Ann Wilde, hopefully we can talk to her about Ogden Kraut. I believe Ann Wilde did a Mormon Stories podcast where she talks about Ogden Kraut, so you can look that up. But he wrote books such as Jesus Was Married and Polygamy in the Bible. And he often would write responses to the LDS general authorities. And Ann sort of had this romantic love with Ogden as much as she did with writing. They both sort of, this was their thing that they did together. They would write, and she continues that work on to this day. Uh, there's John Singer. He was killed after pointing a gun at law enforcement officials who came to retrieve the children of his polygamous wife, Shirley Black. There's Adam Swap. He's an independent who's serving time in Arizona prison for the 1998 bombing of a Mormon chapel. The bombing was in retaliation for the death of Swap's father-in-law, John Singer, this led to a two-week standoff at a cabin in Marion, Utah, where Swap, two sister wives, their mother, and several children were located. In the siege, a corrections officer was killed and Swap was wounded. The siege was featured in the made-for-TV movie in the line of duty, Siege of Marion. And then there are independents like Brian David Mitchell, which I'm not going to go into that story. It's quite popular. But Brian David Mitchell is basically the man that abducted Elizabeth Smart. I actually had the opportunity to meet Brian David Mitchell several times. I worked downtown when it was uh, just after ZCMI changed to uh, Myron Frank is what it was called at the time. And he and his wife Wanda would often come and use the restrooms and uh, use the dressing rooms. So I met him. He even at one time passed me a little note with scriptures on it, talking about being the seed of the stem of Jesse. I remember thinking that was really, really odd. And uh, 
but always, always super nice. And then I remember seeing Elizabeth Smart with him later on, not knowing it was Elizabeth. I just remember nudging my husband saying, hey, there's a guy I was talking about that I, that used to come into work. Looks like he found a new wife, which is terribly haunting now to think about the story that happened there. But Brian David Mitchell also has a similar story. He took it to some violent lengths. And, you know, in hearing all of these different groups, it's so interesting to think of this idea of Mormon authority what it can do to people, what it has done to people, what it does to men who feel entitled to this authority, what it does to women who feel entitled to follow this authority or sometimes not follow this authority against their will. It's really interesting. And I think that for us to not perpetuate this stuff as harmful, we need to reflect on ourselves and maybe think about it. Think about what we would do, what it would take for us, where our motivations are. But not just that. If I want to end, I don't want to end with you just contemplating what it would take for you to start your own religion. I want you to contemplate what it would take for you to follow one of these groups. What would it take? Where would you have to be? What would you take and what would you discard? Who would you follow and why and how? And these are the important questions. And I think this is the work we have to do, especially as Mormons. This is our work. Because in some ways, whether we like it or not, this is one of the legacies of Joseph Smith. This is one of the legacies of Brigham Young. This is one of the legacies of us, of our church that decided to discard itself. I mean, we talk about all these abuses in polygamy, and I'm going to talk about this in the FLDS more. And I talked about this in the Kingston group a little bit. But it's not that abuse is inherent in polygamy. But the fact that polygamy has been illegal for so long, that it's been in the shadows, that it didn't provide an avenue for people who were being abused to protect themselves. What responsibility have we had in that? What responsibility has the LDS Church had in that? What responsibility has the government had in that? I mean, I maybe I'm projecting more than I should, but I feel like this, this is all our mess. We're all tied to this. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And it starts with us and where we're at. And so, without passing too much judgment on fundamentalism, I would ask everyone to practice. This is so hard for Mormons. Practice looking inside yourself and listening to your own inner voice instead of the voice of authority. And that's as preachy as I hope to get for now. So thank you for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. We are now on yearpolygamy.com. Our RSS feed should be up within two weeks. So I would recommend you go to yearpolygamy.com to link to your family and friends. It's a clean site that has just the Year of Polygamy episodes in order. Go and see what you think. Special thank you to those who donated and made that possible. And it's almost done. And uh, I'm excited for that. So thanks for your support and thanks for listening. Good night.